You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with John Windsor on the open talent economy. John Windsor built a big publishing business around sports and fitness. He saw the business changing and started crowdsourcing articles from athletes. That got him interested in open talent, otherwise known as work outside of full-time employment, which includes the freelance and the gig economy. Three years ago, he joined the faculty at Harvard Business School as a visiting executive and founded Open Assembly, an organization that hosts conversations about the future of work. In this conversation with Tom, John describes the shift to open talent. Corporations are interested in the shift because of the potential to get work done faster, better, and cheaper. Individuals like the flexibility and the variety. Tom and John also talk about the new social contract that would be needed in order to support open talent markets. Let's listen in. Hey, John Windsor, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Hey, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Hey, I discovered uh, doing some research that you were at Colorado College at the same time that I was at Colorado School of Mines. Wow. <laughs> Not too far away from each other at all. Yeah, but worlds apart in terms of learning philosophy, at least 40 years ago. Uh, how how yeah. did you get to Colorado College? Uh, you know, I think that the main driver at the time was I wanted to be a skier and I was from the Midwest <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't really, it wasn't a conscious choice that, you know, I, I ended up at such a progressive school. That's interesting. I, um, I fell in love with a Denver girl and decided to stay, uh, in state so that mine, mine was just about as, uh, as accidental. Although, um, I went to School of Mines to be a, an Arctic and glaciological scientist because I had really fallen in love with the mountains, um, had done a lot of climbing and, and skiing as well. And so part of being in Golden was uh, just being in the mountains. Yeah, same thing for me. I, you know, I, I was, a, I was a kind of an alpine skier, area skier when I went to CC. But, you know, the CC has quite the heritage of climbers and mountaineers and kind of that, that influenced me in a huge way. Uh, Colorado College is, is famous for being um, a big block school where you study one thing at a time. And I, I think the school is still organized uh, in that way. Is, does that uh, yeah, it is. style of learning still make sense to you? Yeah, I, you know, it's, I, I attribute a lot of my success in life because of the block system. I think, uh, you know, I was, I was from a small Midwestern town and, and not you know, in a factory town called Canton, Illinois, International Officer was the biggest, biggest employer. And so, you know, coming, coming to a school that was more academically rigorous, just the idea of, of focusing on one thing at a time, man, it, it made such a huge difference. Um, it was super hard for me, but, you know, it gave me the ability to try on lots of different career opportunities and philosophies and thinking, um, I especially noticed that when I when I went to DU for business school, you know, I, I got out of CC and then worked for a year and a half and then wrote a book. And kind of as I was getting that book, going through the editing process, I just kind of quickly decided to, oh, I should get my MBA and applied. And a week later, I was in classes. Um, and so, John, you, you uh, did the MBA at DU the same time that I did as well. Oh, really? <laughs> Were you think, there too? I, I started mine at Pitt. Yeah, when I was uh, in the 
in the coal business. And then I finished at the U in 84, the year you started. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, if you remember, like there was it was just such early days there. And, and uh, you know, there Pete, Pete Niehoff. I don't know if you remember Pete Niehoff. Yeah. Such an amazing, amazing guy. And I don't know if you remember Ron Rizzuto in, in, uh, sure. in finance. Ron's still there. And, no uh, kidding. I, yeah, no, I yeah. actually, uh, I got an energy finance degree. Um, learned a lot from uh, from Ron, and still think about him in those classes. Uh, yeah. When I think about an investment and net present value and uh, <laughs> what the what the rate of return is, I think back to That's, to Ron forty years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, what's amazing to me is like Ron's been so instrumental in my life. You know, through these thirty years, he and I haven't spent that much time together. But on the other hand. You know, both my my nephews um, are at DU and play lacrosse, and so I've reconnected with Ron. And then my son Charlie has decided he just fell in love with DU through Ron, so he's an in, incoming freshman this year at DU. So, well, after we left, I, I think uh, Bill Daniels uh, made a big gift to the, the, the school, and they really have done a nice job of incorporating uh, ethics, uh, into the curriculum. I, I really appreciate that about the, the Daniels, uh, school of business. Yeah. It's always great to go to a place that gets way better after you leave. I don't well, know if I, I would I don't know that, if I could ever get in there again. <laughs> uh, right. I would say the same thing about Colorado school of mines. It was really uh, plug and chug 40 years ago. And I had the chance to visit, uh, campus last year and it's, um, really, um, student centered project based, um, really focused on helping young people make a difference in the world. Um, still, uh, obviously, very academically challenging, uh, but but I think much more thoughtful pedagogically. So it's been fun to see both of those schools really uh, blossom. Yeah, that that's great. It was super interesting for me because I, you know, I took Charlie both to um, to DU and to CC on the same day to look at it. And, and DU was just unbelievable you know very focused yeah. on long-term success and helping and you know kind of learning programs for kids and and then we went to cc for the same kind of introductory and you know it was all about hey you can travel the world and you can take blocks off and you can do all this great stuff and uh you know i was so excited about cc for charlie and i asked him well, what do you think this is so cool isn't it and he you know after comparing and contrasting to he just looked at me and said Mm, CC's great. It's a uh, summer camp for rich kids. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, that's, uh, that's not, not what my experience was, but that's, that's kind of how they sold the school versus DU is very much focused on the problems of the world today. And so it's, you know, I, well, I think at the core of CC, they still have the block program. It's, it's unfortunate that maybe some of the marketing and some of the way they talk about it isn't, John, how'd, how'd you get into, uh, it, it sounds like you started writing right out of college and uh, how'd you get into the publishing business? Uh, cause my, my dad actually, you know, the family history of, of newspapers. So my great grandfather was, um, did one of the first ESOPs in the country in media. He was, uh, you know, on the management team of the Kansas city star and, you know, back in, in the early in, in 1911, I think was the date, but back then, you know, much like it is today that, uh, media companies are really patronages because they, they don't make any money, especially newspapers. Uh, and so the guy who owned the Kansas City Star ran out of money and the, and the senior management took over and it was pre-advertising. So it wasn't worth anything. Um, 
and fortunately, you know, my great grandfather got the, you know, was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. So advertising, the idea of advertising took off. And if you're going to marry into to one of his four daughters, you had to go into the newspaper business. And my grandfather, you know, had a paper in Illinois and, and uh, in Missouri, a place called Boonville. And then my dad kind of went into the same business. So, so I kind of grew up, you know, since I was, I don't know, <laughs> my, my first memories are me, like at the newspaper hanging out and high school was all about, you know, carrying lead blocks from the basement up to the smelter for the hot lead press, running the press in college and things like that. So that started super early and, you know, putting ink on paper was, is kind of my blood. Uh, but, but, you know, I got intrigued. One of the things, and, you know, you, you'll totally appreciate this because of your, you know, dedication to fitness and, and I'm the same way. I played football in college and got into climbing and running and all those kind of things. And, uh, you know, got out and started my first job and oh, I started putting on a bunch of weight. And I just remember I was in New York city for a meeting and, uh, you know, I'd gotten pretty heavy and, you know, you know how it was in the early eighties. I, I went outside the hotel and said, Hey, where can I run? And, uh, the guy was like, dude, I would not run around here. This is dangerous. <laughs> so I went upstairs and had a big hamburger, French fries and, and a milkshake and <laughs> put on a few more pounds. And I just decided to write a book called Fitness on the Road, kind of where to stay to stay fit. And that took me on a crazy journey of, you know, traveling around the country with my bike. And, you know, my publisher supported me as I as I try to discover the best, you know, fitness trails and hotels to stay in. Back then, you know, only four seasons really had fitness centers in their hotels. So it was early days. Wow. That's interesting. I'm curious uh, now with your running and cycling, um, uh, do you track that? Do you use any kind of a tracking app? Uh, yeah, I do some Strava stuff. You know, I, I, I was really, really heavy into racing. I, you know, I started a, a magazine publishing company around, around, so I had sports and fitness publishing, which is a regional title and women's sports and fitness and, Gravity Magazine and, and then a bunch of, um, you know, magazines in the inline skating biz. And so I was really, really into racing back then. Unfortunately, I kind of blew myself up, um, you know, raced <laughs> Nordic skiing. But I, I had this crazy idea that we were going to go around and set speed records in the 90s on all the, the, the seven summits. And so the first one we did is we went went to Kilimanjaro and, and set the world record running up and down that. Wow. Um, by by a bit and then went to Aconcagua with the same idea but got weathered off two years in a row and it just destroyed my knees and so you know as much as I love to run and climb I don't you know I'm not as analytic as I could be and you know certainly on my bike I am for sure but I tend to yeah. you know one, one of the one of the issues for me with analysis is that I get too obsessed right and it takes some of the joy out of it I'm always looking at especially on Strava right like what, you know, what, what did I do eight years ago on that same section? And oh my God, I could have pushed it a little bit harder and done better. So it's cool that you, uh, that you were able to make a career out of, uh, a couple areas of passion between, uh, publishing and fitness. Yeah. I see. I feel super fortunate. You know, I, one of the big inspirations was the thing that really pivoted the career in publishing was that, you know, that we found this, bankrupt magazine called women's sports and fitness that Billie Jean King had started. And, and, you know, being here in Boulder, my wife at the time was uh, a professional triathlete and a bunch of her friends and they really wanted a magazine of their own. And, you know, we, I put everything on the line to go buy that. And lo and behold, you know, women 
women started, you know, doing sports. <laughs> it, it was funny when I when I was going to buy that magazine out of bankruptcy. I went to Nike and because they were some good friends, Mark Parker and, and Tinker Hatfield, and I said, "Hey, should I put my house on the line and do everything to kind of promote women's sports?" and and Parker and and uh, and Tinker looked at me and said, "Yeah, I, th- I think women are going to do sports one of these days. I think it's it might be a big thing. You should do it." <laughs> and so, you know, fifteen years later, it turned out to be good advice. Yeah, it did turn out to be great advice. I sold the magazine to to Condé Nast in in two thousand. It was it was a great experience for sure. Uh, uh, let, let's uh, fast forward to the the topic of our discussion today: uh, o- open talent. Yeah. How and where did you get interested uh, in this uh, idea of the, the future of work? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it was really a necessity, right? So when I bought women's sports and fitness, one of the things that, that made, made women's sports and fitness work financially after being bankrupt is that I had no capability to hire any, any, you know, writers or editors. Uh, I could hire a couple editors, but I kind of flipped it on its head and said, well, you know, man, there are lots of great athletes that are out there doing super cool stuff. Let's let the athletes write the articles and we'll just edit them. And, you know, let's let them tell, tell real stories and not have some, some writer follow an athlete around and kind of try to interpret what they're doing. So um, that got me super interested in, in the whole thing. And then, and then when I sold that magazine, what was really inspiring to me, well, one, one, one of the things that was inquisitive to me, was that we we knew that the brands we worked with, especially like big car brands or you know, food brands, had a ton of money to spend, and they wanted to spend it on healthy women. And by the time they had you know those marketing dollars, so many intermediaries would get kind of um, take a piece of that. But by the time they would you know advertise in women's sports and fitness and talk to their audience, they had just pennies on the dollar. And so I you know I read this book called Diffusions of Innovation by Everett Rogers, which was in the, you know, in the 1950s. And he was describing how hybrid corn seeds were, you know, should be distributed, um, you know, with the, the innovators and early adopters, early majority, late majority and laggards. And I, you know, really dawned on me. I thought, oh man, that, you know, our readers were really early adopters. And if I could take that community and not be an audience for advertisers, but actually put them at the top of the funnel, and then charge advertisers for strategy and research to help them design new new products and marketing. Um, that might work out okay. And and so we were kind of one of the first. We kind of called our service uh, radar communications, but we called our service uh, anthrojournalism because we were a bunch of journalists, but we were interested in how anthropologists went out in the field and got information. And uh, and we did a bunch of ethnographies back in the day and, and uh, got women to tell their stories to brands and did a lot of amazing global work for a bunch of companies. So that's really started the journey. Instead of us trying to be the expert, right? The, 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 you know, the expert in a field, it was that kind of humility of saying, I don't know, let's go ask, let's go ask people that are really doing it. We, I could never as a you know, middle-aged guy tell you what it meant to be a female athlete, but you know, but, I knew a lot of female athletes and why not ask them and let them tell their story. So what, uh, what is open talent anyway? How do you define the concept? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a long journey, right? So we, we, we did, we did that. And we, back then I wrote a few books on co-creation. I was calling it co-creation back then, co-creating with your customers. And, 
in the marketing space. And and then, you know, Jeff Howe wrote the book in 2006 called Crowdsourcing, which seemed to take off and that, you know, caught a lot of attention. But because outsourcing was a big deal then and it was really right. looked in a negative space, crowdsourcing kind of took that negative energy as well. I mean, it was great to use that word as a disruptor to be provocative, but it really wasn't helpful. So we're, we're using today, we're using open talent as a, as a term to think about talent in the biggest sense that it's not a closed in employee employer relationship, but it's really open talent. And you can work with people, uh, whether they're freelancers or you can contests uh, or gig workers or, you know, any way, you know, the taskification of work and the ability to, do work together. So everything we, we want to create, we've tried to create that as an umbrella term to include things like open innovation, uh, crowdsourcing, co-creation, and a collaborative innovation, freelance, everything. Should everybody be in that space or um, is it something that complements full-time employment? Uh, what's the homeostasis that you, you see um, five or 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think you know, there's some dynamics, right, that that make this this possible. I mean, I think back at when I had women's sports and fitness. You know, I spent uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars in 1995 stringing my offices with Ethernet cables so that they could all go on to dial up and get email. And now, you know, the technology we just walk into a coffee shop and there's you know Wi-Fi and we can we can do anything we did back then, but for free. And so. You see a, a rapid, you know, drop in the price of technology, and and you know, this kind of gateways and expert gateways that you had to go through certain people to get to the knowledge. Now knowledge is ubiquitous, and and so I think there's that's one dynamic: the the drop of price of being an entrepreneur and doing what you really want to do, being a part of what I would kind of call the passion economy. Um, so you know, if you're into I, into being an educator, why not sell your lesson plans online on some of the platforms that allow you to do that and make extra money? So I think there's that. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, the, some of the statistics we've seen in, in, at Harvard are, you know, the average employer spends 0.03% of an employee's salary on job-specific training. So, you know, specifically tooled towards skills for that job. Whereas the average freelancer spends 15% of their time learning. And my sense is, is I, as an employer, I want to be around the people that spend the most energy on learning and be in creating a learning culture. And so to me, that demands, you know, new ways of engaging with people. Um, and, you know, freelance is certainly one of the options. It's early days. And even, even though it's been happening for 20 years, you know, this kind of open talent movement. Uh, lots of great platforms that are out there and, and a lot of platforms are trying to figure out how do we make it a much more sustainable thing for people, not just an adjunct to a, a, a traditional job. Yeah, yeah let's, uh, let's dive into that. It, 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 it's clear that um, new commerce platforms uh, that make it easier, much easier to start a business, um, that new communication platforms that make it uh, much easier to code an app or to create a campaign, uh, new uh, talent platforms that make it much easier to uh, to sell your time and your craft, uh, new platforms that make it easier to uh, take advantage of a free hour or two in a car 
mm-hmm. um, right? All, all of those have created opportunity for people. Um, but I, how do we create a um, an open talent economy that um, is equitable for everyone, that really gives people a, a fair shot um, at making a, a living wage? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's that's a big concern. We have a thing called the collective, which we have about forty members, both the demand side folks who buy, you know, open talent, and and then all the platforms: uh, Upwork, TopTal, Top Top Coder, uh, Freelancer, um, and you know, we're all concerned with that. We're all concerned with how do we create this into a sustainable movement. I think you know, there's it's such a nuanced layer, right? There's there's the issue of um, the fact that in the U.S. at least that, you know, benefits are tied to employment and right. that is a huge issue of, of not allowing people to have the freedom to pursue the things they really want to do. Yeah, we, um, we I mean, we should probably underscore that. that that's an idiosyncratic solution. The rest of the world doesn't typically tie health insurance to employment. Exactly, exactly. Right. And so in, in some respects, the solution that we backed into does not position the United States well for this, what appears to be a global direction towards open talent and doing it in a way that is sustainable and equitable. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that puts us at a real economic disadvantage. You know, one of the things that's happening that, that we see a lot is that, you know, large companies are deciding to use open talent because of the current, you know, because of the current political situation with, uh, you know, the administration, um, you know, changing policy around uh, allowing immigrants in H1 visas and, you know, those kinds of policy changes. What's transpired is, is, is companies have decided I need great talent and I can't bring them here, you know, as a place, place, place-based solution. So I have to have another solution. It has to be digital. I need a platform to do that. How do I find those folks? You know, the reality is, and and this isn't a, you know, a judgment on the need to create sustainable work, you know, workflows for everybody. But we just live in a in a, in a meritocracy, or, or at least what ha- what's happened is our digital marketplace has created a meritocracy. Whether that's the right product to buy on on uh, Amazon, or it's the right talent to use. And um, you know, I see this all the time. I mean, I, I had an experience a couple of weeks ago that just blew my mind. And it was, you know, I have probably like you, you know, I've I've gotten some mobility issues from all the fitness I've done, all the exercise I've done over the years. And so I saw an ad on, uh, on Instagram for a, you know, for a yoga class specific for hip, hip mobility for $69. And so I, I signed up for it and essentially it was a guy, his name's Lucas and he has a, you know, he has a studio in, in, uh, Barcelona and, um, you sign up for his hip mobility class. It's essentially 21 days in a row. And he does a 15 minute video with his phone, talks you through stuff. You can either do it live or then it's, you know, categorized. And it was all kind of done on a private Instagram channel. And when I looked at the private Instagram channel, he had over 5,000 people that had signed up at $69. So for 21 day class, spending 15 minutes a day teaching, he was making about $400,000 on that class. And so, you know, it's it's mind blowing to me. Like 
the idea of a yoga instructor in a place-based play, you know, spot like Barcelona to be able to have an online class with zero costs and create $400,000 of revenue and, and really, you know, do it in a way that changes the lives of, the, of his customers. Um, it's not like he's the world's authority on hip mobility. He just is, he's entrepreneurial and he's decided to kind of use the digital tools that we have to do things. So I, you know, I think that there's, there's a bit of that, right? The, the people that I see rising to the top on these platforms are that they're just super entrepreneurial. They do things in new ways. They, they're at the very cutting edge of a, of a, a new emerging, um, you know, field or, or technology or, or style of doing something and they do it really, really well. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, unfortunately that it, there's a long tail and the people that are doing the, the most entrepreneurial things, it doesn't mean that trickles down to the rest of the folks that, that don't have the kind of that entrepreneurial mindset. And it puts a lot of pressure on, on those folks economically. So for this to scale in, in equitable ways, do we need to create uh, portable benefits, portable yeah. re retirement programs? Yeah, for sure. And we're working with a couple of uh, insurance companies globally to do that. And there, there's a lot of concern from industry that that's one of the things that, that needs to happen. Right. I mean, I think philosophically what we're seeing is that we know from the work we do at Harvard, because I, 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 I'm an executive resident at a lab called the Laboratory for Innovation Sciences at Harvard. And you know, we've done about a thousand projects around open talent. We know from a lot of the research we've done with NASA, NASA has a very powerful open talent uh, platform called the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. Um, and as we look at those projects, we know the last five years, they've done about 400 projects. And uh, we know that qualitatively that using open talent results in as good or better results from a qualitative standpoint, you know, interviewing the people that did that, but the results happen four to five times faster and they're eight to 10 times cheaper and, and, you know, super powerful results. Uh, you know, the problem is, is that and it, it cuts all the intermediaries out, right? It's, it's instead of hiring a consulting firm that's going to, you know, do a bunch of research and focus on you know, solving a problem. It's just getting way more fluid. And, and it's not only becoming more fluid externally, but that efficiency is happening inside organizations as well. Kind of the learning cycles are becoming much, much quicker. Unfortunately, that means that with that efficiency, people are saving lots and lots of money, but that means reduction in, in not only in jobs internally, but also in jobs from consulting companies and other, you know, smaller companies that serve places like NASA that make it more difficult, right? It's, it becomes a much more of a competitive marketplace. And so I think the only way to go is exactly what we talked about is to, to create portable benefits, to create uh, social systems that allow for, you know, a minimum income um, and, and create a place that is fairer and more equitable for everybody. Hey listeners, Jessica here. I wanted to just take a quick break from today's episode to let you know that Getting Smart offers advertising opportunities on our podcast and on our website. Do you need to get the word out about a new campaign or initiative? Want more school leaders and teachers to plan for the new school year with your EdTech product in mind? If you're interested in sponsorship or want to learn more about ad placements, just shoot me an email at info at gettingsmart.com. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Uh, three years ago, you started an organization called Open Assembly that 
um, produces content around open talent, uh, hosts a community, uh, does some consulting. Uh, what are you trying to accomplish with, with uh, Open Assembly? Yeah, well, originally it, it just came out of, of our heart, work at Harvard. People said, you know, the guys at Harvard, my, my partners, they really want to be academic or they really want to focus on the academic side of things and not interested in, in helping companies adopt these kinds of new things. Um, what we find is, you know, at the research at Harvard and some of the research I've been involved with, even as a subject, um, is that you know adoption is really really difficult inside organizations, especially when the technology threatens the identity of people, and uh, you know you see this over and over in in places like NASA where you've got you know eight heliophysicists working on a problem for you know for a dozen years with millions and millions of dollars of budget, and it goes out on an open platform, and a retired you know cell phone engineer solves the same problem in twenty days and creates four times the you know this the success uh in for for you know thirty thousand dollars it really threatens the identity of folks that have been working on stuff so so we're trying to figure out how you know a few things one how do we help the adoption process because we feel like if more companies adopt open talent there'll be more of a movement to create the kind of political solutions we need to to make things more equitable um you know that means changing a lot of the behaviors inside companies. It's it's super interesting to me as we sit in this age of COVID. The biggest issue that we faced as an industry before COVID was that most companies interested in adopting open talent were reluctant to go down the path of, of letting anybody work remotely. Like they didn't, you know, their attitude was most companies' attitude was we can't trust people that we don't see every day and, and know that they're doing the work. So, so that's kind of been knocked down. Uh, you know, my sense is, is that we have all the, the research and we understand the efficiency of doing things. The second step really is to, to get the adoption uh, from companies that say that, hey, this is, a, this is a, a way to not just have, you know, employees, not just because it's more cost effective, but because knowledge their faster turns, the ability to be more efficient in discovery, um, get getting things done. Um, we're, we're also seeing that embedded in software, that open talent starting to be, become embedded in software, which is really intriguing to me. But I think we've got to create enough of a movement so that it puts pressure on things politically. And then we, we you know, the end game obviously is to change things culturally so that we have the kind of benefits that everybody needs but you know unfortunately i think we've, we've unleashed the pandora's box of, of technology and we're you know we're a decade at least away from solving all these issues that technology's brought brought upon us let's talk about uh education for uh, a market of open talent uh, what should high school look like what should we focus on what kind of learning experiences do you think would benefit young people yeah, so I, I'm I'm super intrigued with that. I, you know, I think the place to start thinking about that is is actually in some of the experimentation is is happen that's happening on kind of upskilling in you know in on the kind of the platform level. A few of the platforms and you know 
Top Towel's kind of been one of the leaders. They're they're doing an amazing job of actually analyzing the 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 difference between the demand side and the supply side. Uh, what we you know what skills are in demand. Um, where do companies not have supply, and then how do how do they go into their community and train people? So, one of the examples they talked about not too long ago was they you know they did some analysis and they realized that AWS um, software engineers were in high demand, low skills or not low skills, low supply, and 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 low connections. So they actually went out to their community and have paid people to reskill and guaranteed them work in this in this field and i think you know that's part of the solution my sense is that you know that the big thing that that's that high school needs to really focus on is is be more experiential and learn how to learn right and i think there's two areas and i i got i'm keenly uh sensitive to that both my boys just graduated from high school and then i have two other kids that are in the middle of it so we've tried lots of different options because of a lot of different things that have happened to their lot in their lives um but my sense is, is that you know as you and i've talked about thomas you know i think there there are two things to to accomplish at the high school level one is to create a safe place to learn and to fail right to to experiment with things and then uh, and then a vessel to to allow for experiential learning and 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 to just mature, right? To allow for finding one's passion and finding what, what's pe- what people are interested in, not not for life, but just to begin that search. So, we recently interviewed uh, investor and author uh, Ryan Craig, who's now champion for uh, hard sprint to a good first job. Uh, he he said. His basic advice is um, if you don't get a free ride to a top selective school, then find a hard sprint to a good first job, a free or debt-free, probably technology um, training program that gets you on the on the rung of the employment ladder. Uh, what do you think of that uh, new emerging view of post-secondary? Is that... Uh, I, think it, I think it's right on. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, especially... You know, as I sit here with two guys going into college and wondering if they're going to have classes in the fall and, and thinking about the value of a of, of an education, if, you know, if those universities happen to be, you know, remote this year, what's the what's the value and how do you think about that compared to all the other online schools? I mean, you've seen that, you know, we've seen that really happen in some of the stuff we've done at Harvard, the Kareem Makani who runs the lab you know, is the, is the kind of the founding father of the lab. He had a entrepreneur in, in technology or technology and entrepreneurship, uh, class to edX, uh, that he's done with Harvard. And it's, you know, last year there were 5,000 people that took the class this year. There are, there are 40,000 people that take the class. Um, and I think, you know, our, our ability, even as high school students to go into an edX system or a Coursera, Whatever platform and start taking classes from Harvard is is kind of is kind of astounding. Um, it's really really you know interesting to me that we've really created a system that has much more access to people. And I would concur uh, completely that getting on the path to to finding a job. And the other thing that's really brilliant about 
open talent platforms is that you can get in and start working today, right? On any field you want to work on. And, and a lot of that, that work is, is to learn, right? Is to learn and experiment and try. And, 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 you know, I, for me as an employer, I would rather hire somebody who, you know, let's just take graphic design, you know, instead of somebody who had worked for a firm for three years and maybe done 10 projects for those three years that are big projects or somebody that's been on a platform that's done, you know, in those three years, a few hundred projects and, and had some very quantitative results that are measurable and you can see the data on what they won and what their, you know, what their reputation ranking is on delivery. It seems like such a, so much more of a sure bet to get somebody like that to do your work. To do, to do the, the project that you need done. So from an employer standpoint, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, John, you reminded me of uh, the, the last day that I was in a high school before they all shut down. I uh, met a young man in uh, Boise that was not only taking some classes on Udemy, he was teaching classes. Yeah, so he'd, so he'd take a class and then he'd turn around and advertise a 3D modeling class and he'd have 5,000 people uh, sign up and uh, pay him 10 bucks uh, to teach a class. <laughs> yeah, right? that's so, so awesome, right? It's like, I mean, but I, I, I think the big thing is that, you know, that the overall cultural feeling, you know, it, to me that the scary thing is it's a really, it's a, it's a retraining the mindset of the population, right? It's like, instead of thinking about it as you're going to work and you're looking for some kind of a patronage, uh, patriarchal relationship with the company that's going to take care of you. It's these days it's you're on your own. And if you're aggressive and you be creative, then you can do exactly those kind of things. Right. And you, you can make a career for yourself very, very quickly. Uh, but if you don't, if you don't jump in and, and engage and be passionate about it, it's really, really hard. Uh. Uh, there is uh, such an exciting level of opportunity for young people that are um, aggressive, have a, a, an entrepreneurial mindset. I guess my big worry here, John, is just the, um, does this lead to the inevitable widening um, income and wealth gap in society? Is there any way that we can prevent that? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to do that in any other way besides some kind of, you know, some form of universal income. Right. There's just no way to bring people out of the situation. So many folks find themselves in today. You know, it's not to me, it's, it's, it, you know, being an entrepreneur takes a few things, right? It takes, it takes a, some space to be entrepreneur, entrepreneurial and, 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 be not only be creative, but also be, you know, be in a safe space that allows you to do some failure. Right. But also, but I think the big thing is, is like, how do you create the space to not be distracted? Right. And, and I know in my own life, you know, just, just watching my, my former wife go through her bipolar period and, 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 you know, and commit suicide that it, it was just such, such, a really unfortunate and distractive power and force for, for my boys. And I think that's, unfortunately, we've put so many people in desperate economic situations where there's a whole generation of people that are incredibly distracted. They can't, 
they don't have the space to think about anything in a positive, creative way that they're that they have the ability to try new things at all. And so, you know, it's just really unfortunate. We don't we haven't taken care of our, you know, people. I think it's you know, it's even, you know, apparent how we've dealt with this COVID issue instead of thinking about how to keep people safe and, you know, how do we create the right kind of health healthcare system that makes sure that we all can, you know, survive this this pandemic. It's unfortunate that we've we've take, decided as a culture to take other choices. So, uh, open talent sounds like uh, um, an exciting opportunity for young people um, with a world of uh, a new world of opportunity uh, um, on these platforms, um, where you really can make a difference um, while you're in high school, while you're in uh, in college. Um, it, uh, a couple of times we've touched on the fact that it is just going to take, um, a new social contract, uh, that creates opportunity for everyone that creates, um, a, a floor of, um, both economic and, um, health security that allows people, uh, some degree of freedom, uh, to try to fail, um, to find their way in this, uh, in this new economy. So both, uh, great opportunity, but a, an obligation that we all have to, to help create that new social contract. There's no doubt. And I, I think if I was a, a young person, I, I, I would harken back to the great work by Kevin Kelly on the idea of, you know, a thousand true fans, right? I, I don't know if you know, you're familiar with that, that, sure. that work. And I love that. I, I think that's an idea that's super inspiring, right? That's a very, you know, where the rubber meets the road, like how do you build a community of, of a thousand people that want to, you know, hear your voice, uh, buy your songs, um, you know, fuel your passion. And I think if you start there, right, if you start there as a young person, whether it's your example of the you know, high school kid in Boise who's creative enough to say and bold enough to say, well, I can teach that. I can find, you know, a thousand people that could pay me a little bit of money to do that. Um, you know, the fluidity of, of our economy is, is astounding. You know, when you think about payment services like PayPal and Venmo and all the things that we can transfer, you know, transfer money, there's lots and lots of ways to build careers, but it, like you said, it takes us, it takes a, it takes a, a, a you know, a bit of security and it takes the lack of distractions and it takes, you know, some kind of foundation to allow you to operate on that. And, and I, it's incumbent on us as a culture to create that foundation for everybody that we need to, you know, provide equal access to these opportunities so that people can get started on, on pursuing their passions. Hey, John Windsor, it's been great to have me, uh, have you on the getting smart podcast. Uh, let's do it again. I'd love that Tom, at least maybe go out for a run or uh, get a ride in. Let's do it. Thanks. Thanks so much. A big thanks to John Windsor for joining us this week. We appreciate his focus on equity as well as opportunity in the emerging open talent market. For more on new pathways to employment, see episode 264 with Ryan Craig. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. We also suggest checking out Skill Rises podcast. We'll link that as well. And like always, make sure you rate and review the podcast and hit subscribe. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in.
For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.